shows another guy. A guy doesn't do shit. He just sits in his miserable. Everybody's gotta live a life. And thanks to the ask for why. What do you put me here just to die? afternoon here it's a bit after four o'clock you're listening to finding a voice here on cfrc 101.9 fm we are located in lower carruthers hall queen's university kingston ontario my name is bruce this is finding a voice spoken word program airing here every friday afternoon from four to six o'clock we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca Coming up on the show today in the first hour from a June 3rd book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, you'll hear Ashley Elizabeth Best reading from selected uh, uh, work and uh, John Barton reading from and launching his new collection of essays, memoirs, and manifestos. And I'm just going to try to see why this... There we go. Now we're all hooked up. And uh, the book is called We Are Not Avatars. Uh, Following that, from the November 4th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series, you'll hear readings by Gemma Dorlayers, I believe is how it's pronounced, Leanne Torres, Kinman, and Michelle McTogg. In the second hour, from a June 6th book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, you'll hear uh, Mark Burry uh, reading from and launching his new book, Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit Radisson. And uh, I'll have uh, several minutes in the second hour. It's a busy couple of weeks coming up, uh, event-wise, and... uh, then it kind of really slows down for summer, so I wanted to allow a little extra time, and I will do that in the second hour today. I'll have probably seven or eight, maybe more minutes uh, to do that. So there we go. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally some poetry, a spoken word or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Uh, And again, as I mentioned, I think I'll even have a little bit of time. I've got a couple of calls for submissions that I'll probably stick in the uh, little bit of room I have at the end of the first hour. But definitely the second hour will be devoted to a number of events uh, coming up in the next two weeks. 
So to start off, let's go ahead and go into that June 3rd book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. First up in it, you'll hear Ashley Elizabeth Best reading from Selected Work. And uh, again, uh, John Barton uh, will then be reading from his new collection of essays, memoirs, and manifestos called We Are Not Avatars. And as emceed by uh, Eric Folsom. So up first, Eric introducing Ashley Elizabeth Bess. And let's see if we're all set up here. I believe we are. So let's give it a shot. There's lots of room down front, class. Yeah, there's always, there's always Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming out. Um, thank you to Oscar and Joanna and Novel Idea. Thank you to Bruce for you know his help. I could I could see you setting up chairs, Bruce. <laughs> and um, we have two readers tonight: uh, Ashley Elizabeth Best and John Barton. I'm going to ask Ashley Elizabeth to read first. Ashley Elizabeth Best is a native of Coburg, Ontario, who has made Kingston her home. Her widely praised debut collection, Slow States of Collapse, was published by ECW Press in 2016. She has had poems published in the Literary Review of Canada, Minola Review, Cosmonaut Avenue, and many other magazines. Also, in 2016, she appeared at the Kingston Writers' Fest. Please welcome Ashley Elizabeth Best. I'm very glad to be here. Um, big fan of John, so if you told myself 10 years ago I'd be reading with you, I would have been jumping up and down. I mean, I'm still jumping up and down before now. Um, <laughs> it's very exciting. Um, let me think about read a couple of newer things. Some stuff out of my book and a chapbook. I should have brought copies of my chapbook, but mm. I didn't think of it. So, um, This poem is called Drift. Sister, what is left of us in this place that we loved? Things change faster than you'll notice. Epochs of compressed dust speak the facts of decay. An early autumn moon ripens over the horizon's light, sun dragging the unwilling carcass of its shadow over the islands of its spine. Age has thinned our bodies into submission, forming knots within the safety of our own diminishing. The centering personalities of our childhood gone, the old gods lost to this landscape's cloistered convent of Precambrian shield. We preside over the shoulders of a small waterfall shrugged up. In this, our second sorrow, the scrawl of fossils on flat river stones read runic. With the dream past the reality of our task, we lower ourselves into September waters, 
feet sinking into the mud of a river's bottom after such a sad long time. I can't look at you to a face closed off to me. My body scrubs over the river's palette of blue, its bedrock pelvis heavy with leaf litter. A bridge fastens it together, keeps it from splitting open the thrust of its widening sides. The gut of its wandering swells with arteries of fish. Age massaged from the surface of stones, a sudden chorus of rain delivers the sky of its body. Here we are, sister, bruising the waters of our youth, thoughts vacant in the land of my body, divinity lodged in the flesh. This is actually in the middle of a review, so <laughs> glad you mentioned that. Disgrace is catching. She began to give me other names. Silver spoon lure hooked to my lip. I must confuse myself into an answer. I open to the night, hollow my hunger to a lean landscape, the air plump with damp in the back seat of her car. Sand stippled along the dunes, rainwater excising the reek of lake weeds, the promise of distance to make everything new again. I lack commitment, the desire to linger in my body longer, the fear of reigniting my life. This is what it is like to love someone who never learned to care for themselves. The ligature clutch of her love, a lush gift. Disgrace is catching, our limbs kindling for the fire of our lust. My map's misfortune, conjugate fault lines to province boundaries, let the years move through you. When we decide to laugh, it is the laugh of the humorless in a withholding silence. No one wants to love well anymore, an instinct for failure. My ambidextrous heart, even getting caught won't make me sorry. My passion is always dysfunctional, a negligent crescent of hope. I'm gonna read something older before I read my newest thing here. Um, this one's called, I'd like to be the subject of your neck tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I spent three years translating his smile, abandoned words molding the silence after our fights. I thought about him more in French than I did English, and even my prized bilingual tongue could not word his feelings. A tattoo rounded his throat, curved behind the soft flesh of his ear. The faded blue skin read, Betty. I've known Betty for three years, have never heard him mention her. Something too tender to touch. In the night, I stare her down. <laughs> Actually wrote that in the sleepless goat. Long live the sleepless goat. Long live the goat. Yeah. So this doesn't actually have a title. Um, Untitled with a long line from John Berryman. Wednesday is the day for worries. How many plastic bags did you use this week? Is your medication out? Will rent be late this month? What will we do when we inherit the earth? This Wednesday, it is three days since my mother told me she has cancer stuck at a gas station on my way to Sudbury. The bus rides each snow squall, and this Wednesday is no different from any other Wednesdays on the bus. The woman in front of me, in front of me with blue star tattoos on her face is traveling west two weeks after her boyfriend overdosed at an army base. Before I left, the man I thought I loved gave me gifts, turtle dove hearts engraved on a box, a Contigo mug, a band shirt, and claimed half my tooth with a fist. Love, after all, is not practical. It is a surviving necessity. Today, I'm going to the mountains where I can mourn a life that was never mine, where what I can't write about you wakens me, 
where I can believe the mind is in the head and nobody is ever missing. I'll read one more. Sorry. Let's see. Another bus poem because I write a lot of poems about buses apparently. This one's called Stones and Their Stories. This is where I am, falling back into everything I'm not, riding the Greyhound north of Thunder Bay, feeding my reflection in the window, the long sweep of faces, eyes grazing the dark of the bus, fashioning myself without sleep, eyeing dynamite striations in roadside rock, one feeling nesting in another. I am soul sick with grief, jumping over my own shadow, my unshelled mouth, the low bell of a hymn. I like to know things by placing them in my mouth, sappy pine bark, bald paper, and sometimes the dead skin picked from the sides of my fingers. Obsession is the practice of alienation. I'm trying to quit her memory, but I'm apprehended by her words, my mother's voice linking the synapses of my brain. She's reading me as I speak, prose around my thoughts. I'm suffering every part of her in myself. I humble myself before the bus full of bodies felled in awkward rest. To distinguish analysis from prophecy, survival, the most deserved devastation. That's everything. And you just heard Ashley Elizabeth Best uh, reading at the June 3rd uh, reading event and book launch event, I should say, as well, at Novel Idea Bookstore. Again, it was emceed by Eric Folsom. Up next in it, a reading from and launching his new collection of essays, memoirs, and manifestos, again called We Are Not Avatars. Here is John Barton. Thank you, Ashley Elizabeth Bass. That was like that was really good. I like the new stuff. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I feel so lucky every time uh, John Barton comes out with a new book, and um, we kind of have two new books: um, uh, John's essays and uh, and um, and the book that John has edited of Dr. Pants poems. Um, so, John Barton lives in Victoria, B.C where he works as a freelance editor and mentor and is the city's fifth poet laureate. He has published 11 collections of poetry, most recently Polari in 2014, his 12th Lost Family is forthcoming from Signal Editions in 2020. Tonight he'll be reading from his first book of prose, We Are Not Avatars, Essays, Memoirs, Manifesto, which will be published by, which has been published by Palimpsest Press. John. Thank you, Eric, and thanks for everybody to, for coming. Um, I'm going to read one poem from the, Doug the Essential Douglas Lapan, which was published by Porcupine's Quill in May, I think, maybe April. And I'll read a bit from um, Avatars. But I'm going to read a poem. Uh, today's the fifth anniversary of my mother's death, so I'm going to read a poem that I wrote for her, or about her. And... Um, I chose it partly because, um, well, I think I wrote this poem around the time Helen, pub Helen Humphreys published her book, The Ghost Orchard. So, and I started thinking about apples, and my mother 
used to always um, cut her apples in quarters. And um, I don't think I ever saw her eat it any other way. And um, when I started, I think Helen's book does say this. Um, I didn't know that the apple is part of the Rose family. So um, some of that is in this. And so the, uh, the Latin name for apple, or the, uh, the species is, or genus is, Malus polyma. So this is a sonnet. The paring knife you wield alertly flays pink ladies, lobos, and spartans alike. Skins loosed, their honeyed flesh quartered godlike before it browns, unprotected cores spade, practice strokes, roseate, each shucked, each shucked seed, gravid womb in bits, tartly neatened to your plates, gold-flecked rim while you talk and chew, distaste dispatched by etiquettes, heedless untold rules, while I, though well brought up, bite into my own still unnamed, freshly picked orbs, baby teeth ripping through a wind-shined peel, perched on the back step, cheek-churning cider till I swallow, onomatopoeic pips spat out so they may sprout in the real. Okay, and um, I'll leave the um, uh, the lapin to the end. So I'm going to read um, just a little snippets from here and there. It's very hard to read from a book of essays. <laughs> very hard. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit uh, jumping around the introduction. Um, and the introduction is called How I Came to Lead an Authentic Life by Way of Introduction. <laughs> Over a recent Americano in Discovery Coffee on Oak Bay Avenue in rainy Victoria, I, re I read the Ballad of Reading Jail for the first time. Why I had neglected one of Oscar Wilde's last great works till now eludes excuse. Wilde wrote this long narrative poem about the execution of a fellow prisoner soon after his release from prison on May 19, 1897. His sentence of two years hard labor for gross indecency, a legal euphemism for sexual activity between men excluding sodomy, had changed him profoundly. Initially published in an edition of 800 copies in 1898, the year my, grand, my maternal grandmother was born, Wilde's poem would remain a disturbing touchstone for many in the watershed, watershed years to come. It was into Wilde's legacy of brokenness and resilience that I was born in 1957, <clears throat> 60 years after the poem's composition, the year the British government released the report of the Department Departmental Committee on Homosexual Offenses and Prostitution, I always like that link, <laughs> better, <laughs> better known as the Wolfenden Report, named after Sir John Wolfenden, the committee's chair, who was also rumored to have a gay son. It took another decade for the British government to act on Sir John's recommendations to lift the criminal proscriptions against same-sex relations between consenting adults, albeit in only in England and Wales, once the amending legislation was passed. 
apart from chemical sterilization offered to convicted men like uh, Alan Turing as an alternative to prison. This repeal stood as the first significant change in our treatment since the laws under which Wilde had been uh, prosecuted came into force in 1885. The first time was brave enough to write, attempt writing a queer poem was in 1979. I had just moved into a derelict faux adobe apartment block on View Street at the periphery of downtown Victoria. The red door into my apartment was discreetly off the building's gateless courtyard. Vines of ivy cobwebbed my front windows. In Enfant Terrible, the narrator is haunted by the ghost of Arthur Rimbaud and his decision to forsake renown in favor of running off to live overseas and experience firsthand the illuminations his poems had extolled. And so this is a uh, quote from the poem. <coughs> Rimbaud, you look over my shoulder in white Abyssinian dress as I attempt to fix you down each wall, each word, a stress. Though my back is turned, I feel the window behind you open through your lack of flesh. You laugh. The notes of your voice flutter in the wind like the scarves of the Hahari, of Hahari women. Arthur, tell me, how did you let go? How many did you let go to the highlands to calve your sons? Or did you have none? Women, I mean, all those years alone in Aden before you left to die in France. What a Verlaine, his bullet in your wrist. Was his the body you had last? When you gave up words, did you forfeit love as well? Um, Rambeau was 21 when he shook off poetry's mantle of gold leaf. I was 22 and a student of institutionalized creative writing at the <laughs> University of Victoria. I definitely couldn't workshop Enfant Terrible in class, but I did show it to a friend who immediately observed that it explained everything. <laughs> it took me another decade to start publishing everything and to formulate an aesthetic of candor and completeness that still animates my work. At the time I wrote the poem's first draft, I didn't know I had put pen I put pen to paper ten years after Pierre Elliott Trudeau's government had liberated Canada's liberalized Canada's laws pertaining to homosexuality, a clinical word I have, I have never liked. Nor did I know that on June 28, 1969, the day after the bill had received royal assent, the Stonewall riots occupied the cobbled streets of Greenwich Village in New York for three nights, launching the gay liberation movement that would shake down attitudes as well as laws. Like so much that has made my life meaningful, I learned about Canada's criminal code changes and the Big Apples riots long after they took place, learning also that they had coincided with Judy Garland's death. Unlike Wilde, I was not in Kansas anymore. I've never been vulnerable to being labeled a criminal, at least in the eyes of the law. Accusations of lawlessness, a lawlessness infestive, and other senses could not be avoided. Um, so, um, where am I going to flip to now? Um, oh, okay. Um, when I was the editor of the Malahat, um, uh, my last couple of years, we did an issue on Indigenous writing. 
um, which I like to think, well, I know, I feel was the most um, transformative experience my 30 years of editing literary magazines. I learned a lot. Um, so I'm just going to read a short excerpt from an essay I wrote about the experience of, um, of editing that issue and working with the guest editors who are Indigenous. Um, and um, I think my feeling about the issue is that I came away with feeling that I lived in a much bigger country than I'd ever um, realized before. And so I'm just going to read a little bit about my great-grandfather. Um, I have a family connection to a key moment in history. J.A.V. Preston, one of my maternal great-grandfathers, volunteered for the Northwest Expeditionary Force that came from Ontario in 1885 to suppress what I had, was taught to, in high school to call the Northwest Rebellion, but later learned to call the resistance. Commanding a sentry post upriver from Batash, my great-grandfather describes in his diary hearing gunfire echo down the bluffs of the South Saskatchewan River, May 11th, um, Monday. For three, for three days, we have been able to hear the guns at Batash about 40 miles below us. The sound seems to follow the river banks. From couriers who pass occasionally, we learn that our forces are attacking the rebel position at Batash, but until now, with little success. And tonight, Captain Bonnie Castle, in command of our two com companies, received orders from the general to move forward at once and join the main body. I knew about my great-grandfather's involvement in the detention of Louis Rebel from an early age, and in the spring of 1990, on a trip to Saskatchewan two months before the standoff at Kanesataki, my boyfriend and I followed his movements as best we could by car. He traveled by train, paddle-wheeler, and on foot. I had wanted to get into his moment. When I was writer-in-residence at the Saskatoon Public Library, I returned to Batoche one cold autumn in 2008, and standing on the steps of its restored church, I listened to a Métis interpreter recount how he'd, only, he'd, how he'd only that year managed to track down descendants of one branch of his family, which had scattered far and wide in the aftermath of the battle. Like nothing else, his story made actual the loss he and his indigenous people like him had sustained for generations. I'd entered, and in a sense, have never left the interpreter's moment. At age 51, I was hearing about the experience of an indigenous person firsthand for the very first time. Because of my great-grandfather's involvement, I felt implicated. I f continue to feel so. Many non-Indigenous Canadians whose families originate in the British Isles, France, and the homelands of other colonizing powers fail to see a casual connection between ourselves and the present-day descendants of the peoples our ancestors displaced from their lands on a continent we both now consider home. The family Bibles, yellowed land-grant titles, and bits of lace we ignore or take to the goodwill 
often came down to us unaccompanied by the stories of our ancestors' arrival in North America. I feel fortunate that my great-grandfather kept a diary, even though many entries are upsetting. Sunday, 31st May. Received news last night that General Strange had a brush with Big Bear and that our aid was required to hunt the Redskin. Our Brigade accordingly boarded steamers early in the morning, and we are now on our way west to try conclusions with Big Bear. We hope to clean him out in quick order. Should we go into action, and we, and we at any moment, I feel sure we will all be found at the post of duty to the last. It's conceivable the scattering of the Métis interpreter's family is tied to the actions of my own ancestor. How terrible, how terrible it is to contemplate. Many of us must own up to the blood ties we have with the forces that caused Indigenous people before and since Batash to run for their lives. Um, and uh, just uh, one more bit. Uh, for, uh, every, every direction I look in my past, I can find blood-soaked footprints. Because a, a paternal ancestor was a high-ranking British officer at the Battles of the Plains of Abraham outside Quebec City in September 1759, he played a role in negotiating the surrender of Montcalm's forces. I used to joke with my Francophone boyfriends that if they truly wanted someone to blame for the Quebecois not being maître chez nous. They'd only need look to me. <laughs> it's both satisfying and humbling to admit that my family tree of farmers, lawyers, university academics, and generals is now like Sir John A. Macdonald on the wrong side of history. How shocked they all be. For my Indigenous friends, I fear this turning of the tables of psychological advantage may only be a pyrrhic victory. Despite the con concern for their welfare, many non-Indigenous Canadians now feel the powerful among us who seem always to be crying that the crocodile tears of contrition still control the spoils. After the glove, after slipping on the glove that the BC Arts Council had thrown down when it challenged Grant, challenged grant recipients to make space for Indigenous people and in everything we do, I began dwelling on the intergenerational trauma that my ancestors had caused them. So, um, and I'll just read um, the last piece in the essay, which is just a page long. Um, and it's called on endings. Um, actually, I think I'll read the Lapan first and then switch back. So, my first week at the Malahat, um, a submission of posthumous poems by Douglas Lapan was submitted to the Malahat Review. And um, it was kind of a shock and a surprise, and um, what was a little bit more surprising is when the editorial board met to discuss them, they didn't want to take any. <laughs> and I thought, we have to do that, take something, because how often do you get to <coughs> consider um, work by uh, 
mid-century Canadian modernist who has won two Governor General's awards and um, made a huge contribution. And um, one of the poems, I recognized this setting instantly as um, behind the Chateau Laurier Hotel in downtown Ottawa, which uh, since Confederation times has been a notorious cruising area. Since <laughs> Confederation? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And um, his son, who uh, sent them poems to me, had never known where it was set. Um, so I'm going to read that poem. On a path behind the hotel. He has picked himself up again and again after being knocked down more times than he cares to remember. And now here he is idling along the pathway behind the hotel, high above the lift locks that lead, down, lead to the canal. It's summer, and he's wearing a torn straw hat and carrying a fishing rod as if he'd just climbed up after trying his luck in the river. But nothing is simple behind those candid eyes. Does it show? He is wondering. His questions are legion. Is it a blessing of sorts, or will it spoil everything? How large is the band of those who are like him? Have there been times and places where things were different? He doesn't know how to answer or to define what it is that separates the courage he needs from the cowardice with which he's been branded. He's waiting for someone, but who? That too is concealed from him. It might be a sadist or brother, a pilgrim or dissolute wanderer, a face now muffled in weeping or clouded in beauty. If only there were a voice from a cloud to tell him that Excellus was who was proud to have fought at Marathon, so proud that he had it carved on his tombstone, had no doubt that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers, or someone to sing of the sacred band from Thebes, who over the centuries have triumphed in defeat. Um, beneath the state of their heroic stone lion, the <coughs> lovers lying in swaths on the field of... Um, Sharnak in a luster that links love and courage forever in swaths of fidelity perennially ripened to harvest. Why you don't want to publish that poem, I have no idea. Did you, <laughs> did you convince them? Oh yeah, we took it. Yeah, we took four. It, was it a posthumous submission then? Yeah, he died in 98 <coughs> in okay. 2004. Um, so I'm going to read just one more sonnet and then the conclusion of um, avatars. And so actually I was going to wear the bracelet, but um, a friend of mine um, many years ago gave me a bracelet of a friend of hers in New York whom she knew through the theater community, this is Maggie Dominic, mm -hmm. um, who died of HIV, of AIDS. And um, she and some friends she, when I first met Maggie in 91, she had lost 27 of her friends to AIDS in New York. And um, she often had to clear out their apartments with friends because there was no one else to do it. And one of the things I always remember about her own apartment is you would come in, she, had an, she still lives in the same place, you would come up 
into her apartment through the apartment door and it led to another staircase, which was an L. And at the top of the L, she had taken the door off the closet and painted it black. And she used to do installations of her friend's belongings as kind of a memorial. It was kind of incredible to see. Anyway, she gave me this bracelet by a friend of hers because she said I looked like him. And I didn't wear it for years, and then I, I've been wearing it. And so I wrote this poem for about the bracelet. Kenny's Bracelet. A twined and hammered twist of what's left of him. Nickel, copper, brass. A glinting, soldered echo you heard, found, as his apartment was emptied out. Noise-tapped studio, dim with what became the East Village. Retro, when gentrified. How, he'd li how he lived forgotten. What killed him, a virus adoring thousands like us. An artifact, the past scarecrow, outstaring fear. Garbage cleared from Broadway. The ignored, ignored way he died, not how we are let go of when dying now. His bracelet, a scar, you wrap about my wrist, longing reclaimed, a molten link my skin warms, how like me he used to sit, hands clasped about one knee. Okay, and then the last uh, little piece in you are not avatars. Endings on closure. I suppose I don't have any single way to end poems, though I believe that they must be tied off in some way. By this, I don't mean that an ending should pull all the meandering threads in a poem together by looping them into a unifying knot. Rather, an ending should incite readers to reflect upon what they have just read even to the point that they might feel inspired to read the poem in order to more closely shadow the way it had lured them toward the last line. The ending should come as a revelation, though I don't begin writing any poem by looking to get anywhere. Or if I do, I res resist being obliged to arrive. Instead, I want to be surprised. I believe readers will be surprised if I am surprised. I let each poem unfold according to its own inner map, the map of my subconscious for lack of any other template, allowing myself to engage with what un that unfolding consciously uh, pleads, adding pleads as one, sorry, I'm gonna just start that again. I let each poem unfold according to its own inner map, the map of my subconscious for lack of any other template, allowing myself to engage with that unfolding consciously adding pleats as form and content crescendo so that all unfoldings ahead are spread by cascading details until at last by poem's end its fan and the scene painted upon it is partially or fully disclosed. My aim is to acknowledge the ending only when I come to it much as hikers do when they arrive at a hot springs they did not know they were climbing toward. I want the ending to be unexpected but satisfying, and by satisfying I don't mean affirming or redemptive, but illuminating, even if darkly so. Thank you very much.
I believe there are books. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you, John. It was, it was wonderful. Uh, thank you, Ashley. Um, uh, thank you, um, Oscar and Joanna and, and the staff at Novel Idea and, uh, and Bruce. And, and I'm thrilled that you guys all came out for this evening. Um, I bet the authors would like to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the authors would like to talk to you. And um, can, can we have one more round of applause for yes. Ashley and John? And from a June 3rd a reading event at Novel Idea Bookstore, emceed again by Eric Folsom. Uh, you just heard John Barton reading from and launching his new collection of essays, memoirs, and manifestos, his book called We Are Not Avatars. Tell you what, let's do this, and we'll be right back. Uh, if there's a listener-supported radio station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a in a social and political system. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. The staff at Martha's Table provides a caring place where people in need can have a nutritious meal for only $1. Now you can get involved in this great cause. Martha's Table is looking for volunteers to help in the kitchen, at the drop-in center, picking up food, or even being a friendly face at fundraising events. Volunteer orientation is every Thursday at 4.30 in the drop-in center, and volunteers must be 14 years of age or older. You can donate using a credit card through marthastable.ca, or you can send your donation by mail, cash, check, or bank draft. Martha's Table, 629 Princess Street, whether it's volunteering, donating, or anything else that you can offer Martha's Table, visit their website, marthastable.ca. Shirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7.
just thought I would mention, I believe that show does start, that might have been an older ad, uh, and uh, but I believe it does start at 8 o'clock on uh, uh, Monday evening, so uh, just thought I'd point that out. Uh, you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. Let's go ahead and move now into uh, the June uh, open mic uh, reading in that monthly reading series held at the Elm Cafe and uh, doing them in the round now. So you just hear uh, usually anywhere from three to five uh, poets, uh, each reading one poem. And uh, so coming up... uh, and we're just going to do one. We only have time for one round of this today. I'm planning on finishing up uh, that entire evening uh, with next week's show. But here, uh, this uh, to finish up this hour, uh, you're going to hear readings by Gemma Dorliers, Leanne Taras, Kinman, and Michelle McTogg. And again, apologies if I kind of messed up that first name. So here we go. Let's go ahead and welcome Gemma D. Spring up. All right, can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay, so this one's a good welcome to open night poem, I guess. All right. <clears throat> there is no coincidence that poem rhymes with home. Feel warmth within the words. Get comfortable here. We have food for your thoughts and music for your ears. There's cold coffee on the ceiling and mustard on the walls, but loving arms outstretched for anyone who falls. So unzip your cerebellum and dig your fingers deep, kiss your mom goodbye, and pray for your soul to keep. This place is not one that is friendly, and is not one for the faint of heart, but keeping an open mind is always a good place to start. Jim and D, let's give another hand. Up next, Leanne Terrace, let's bring her up. Thank you. Shadows of Sanskrit. Dreaming of mango groves, exotic scent wafting through the breeze. Cardamom cloves and cinnamon, iced chai tea, cool to fingers touch. Hibiscus and jasmine flowers, petals open and close, like yawning babies, red dry earth waiting, thirsty for the monsoons, come down those driving sheets of rain, leaving droplets of dew on brilliant succulent green, silken shades of fuchsia, jade, and saffron, eyes lined with black-blue coal, tender hands etched in henna, Red oxide, ochre, and burnt umber. Delicate patterns webbed and woven on skin. Climb the mountain. Sit with Buddha under the lonely tree. Its branches speak for thousands that have come before. Leon Terrace, give her another hand. Up next, Kinman, let's bring him up. 
Right, but there's supposed to be that um, occasion for China, not a very proud occasion, Tiananmen Square, but this is something other than that though. This is more about the um, time in Spain with the Moors, some 400 odd years that we don't really read much about in our history for rather obvious reasons. Um, more so the lack of literature in it. I happened to pick up a book called Convivencia, or Convivencia, depending on how you pronounce it in Spanish, um, that tried to detail it, but it was heavy reading. And this is the uh, result. Give me a poem, a song, anything but dissertations, where layers and layers of other thoughts overlap on how the Jews, Arabs, and native once lived. It is grand that its thrust is to throw light on a dark time, buried deep beneath the glory days of old Spain, in the school books of Europe's history. The strains of memories of Alhambra plead for poetry from the people ignored and all likely expelled, and Abdul with lines of living there once. I confess at my age, my patience for long read is thin. The shortness of waking hours, the air of spring, an eternity of words is too much. So this cage with 14 lines and a door can serve me out. The Jews paid my youth in books and long reads a while ago. Thank you. Ms. Kinman, let's give him another hand. Up next, Michelle McTogg, let's bring her up. Um, this is untitled, but honest reading. There lived a woman free, free of rules of how society runs a common mind. But beyond the rules and appropriate interactions, she was a prisoner of her own insanity, a cycle random in nature and unforeseen by them. She was tangled in shackles of light, with an illusion of a shady trust in other people. She was living with the lost. She spent most of the time drifting in waves, conjured by the soulful portions of herself, a drunken misfit compared to all of them. She would stumble and fall upon Trollan's infinite grains of sandy footprints lost her memories, but repairing under new shapes of souls, walking on her own within the magical edges of the world, rising and falling to the beat of the harmony. She sang to a soulful song that swept past the forms of her. Night and day she sang, and she managed to resurrect the trains, forming to the calls of the beast within her. The horns of this beast tilted towards and sportsman's prey. The song gently rose from the hearts of all creatures within this world. She began to know of the reflection of love, a blackened soul, tampered by what she thought was love, became a glare from the sun's abiding tricks that formed colors to the skyline streaming into her. And from that, a reflection of love brought her a new life together with him. The people of a lesson on how to be, he lived with heart's intentions that resurrected the states of being and love. Although caring had its limits, with deception and command and faith 
lost, he was stranded by a missing fortune that was lost within himself. There's an entity that attracted the basic needs that come with being human, but humanity was a nightmare in and out of itself. Ripping open gifts that cover the calculative intention of what some of them just is. And that, that's where they met, in states that matter. They locked eyes, and from there they began to speak. Words that are driven by dreams and nightmares. Words that held them together so they could love for the first and last time. Crawling trains of broken thought, hitting the road where wheels would turn became their escape. Their escape from the unloved souls that twisted their world to calculate how to turn them into an entity of their own. And they left them, running themselves off a road from, far from a barred window where she gazed and he slept. They eventually, with no way to go but to each other, found solace. Within the name of mercy, she woke him from a deep sleep. Crust of dreams wrapped around his frame, and withdrawing from a cracked voice, she screamed. Echoed of his, echoes of his name bounced off the wall where he was staring at for years, and the spell was broken that kept them frozen. Living in the cold, morning skin and bone, they were life for each other. They became one. Dancing the beat of their own soulful songs, they inspired their styles of being. Each day is a blessing. Now that they can change their fortunes and forget the darkness surrounds their heart, the beat quick and sharp. Now the rest of their lives look happy beyond the brightness that captures the, dark, the darkness, blinding first and sliding visions. Never going near the past, but so close to it. Within each other, they trust blindly. Going into love's epiphanies and stakes, their cable to not break the spells that lead them to glory. Under fog and under fog's damp and warm forms, walking into it knowing specks of clouds, ways are only seen in pieces, and from the lifting of times and nature's, nature's alibi, they see a streak of color reflecting the vision of their lives. Within love's rising fields, they stand now always. This is Michelle McDowell, just give another hand. And you just heard uh, readings by Gemma Dorliers, Leanne Taras, Kinman, and Michelle McTogg in the June 6th reading in the And the Journey Continues uh, open mic reading in that monthly series. Again, always held now at the Elm Cafe uh, with still just a few minutes left here in this hour not enough to do another segment, so that's why... I saved just a bit of room here for some announcements. So, and should say that with this first hour uh, nearly airing, and uh, I'd like to thank you for having tuned in to it today. I hope you can stay tuned for the second hour. It's going to be another book launch in that hour. Uh, Mark Borey uh, reading from and launching his new book called uh, Bushrunner, uh, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit uh, Radisson. And uh, one thing I should say, probably, I guess, I should do a station ID since it's getting close to that, but I'll just keep it brief. You're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name's Bruce, and here every Friday uh, from 4 to 6 o'clock. One other thing I always mention at the end of each hour, if I don't forget, is that uh, Bo, uh, all these shows, all of my shows are saved to my blog space for them, and uh, they, uh, they are saved there for four years. And uh, that address is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. So shortly after I get home this evening, I will upload both of these hours to that 
I will mention uh, I've got uh, enough time for the calls here for sure and maybe get into the events uh, that uh, there is a call for submissions that I just discovered. Uh, I've been uh, uh, kind of promoting it uh, for a while since I found out about it. And uh, they are actually going to be publishing their last edition with this call. So you might want to pay attention to that. Uh, bid, bid, the name of the publication is called Big Pond Rumors. And it was uh, conceived, I guess, in 2006. Uh, they've released uh, two issues a year, summer and winter, uh, since then. And uh, in, the, in these, individual authors retain copyright of their works, uh, and uh, they assume only international publication, first international publication rights. And uh, I'm just going to give you their website, but I will tell you their deadline is quickly approaching, so it's actually ending a week from Sunday on June uh, 30th. Uh, why don't you check out uh, their page? www.bigpond-rumors and that's r-u-m-o-u-r-s dot com and uh, you'll get all the information you need there I'd encourage you to submit and uh, there's another uh, I'll mention one more call that's coming up relatively quickly uh, the deadline's not until July 17th but the way time just seems to slip away very quickly, I thought I would mention that. It's for Freelit Magazine. Uh, they're a bi-monthly magazine. They are thematic, and uh, each issue does have a theme. And this one's uh, for the July issue, it's called. Uh, is uh, The theme is, let's see, humanity. So that sounds pretty cool. So there you go, www.freelitmagazine.com. You can go there to get submission guidelines. You can also see uh, past uh, publications. I think they're, I, I've lost track of time with that too. This was, They might be at least three years old or getting very close to it, and they might even be older than that. So they've been around for a while. It is also locally published, so it is online, so it is really cool. Again, freelitmagazine.com, www.freelitmagazine.com. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and try to get a couple of events in here. Uh, coming, uh, well, I should mention first, uh, there is a uh, weekly uh, writing group. Uh, they're called Limestones, uh, Limestone Writers. Uh, they meet in room 239 of the Stafford Library uh, to critique and support one another's writing. Uh, they, uh, a lot of genres are represented. Uh, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, memoir, it says, are all represented. Uh, they meet every Wednesday evening except for the month of August. Uh, and uh, right now in the summer, they are meeting at 6 p.m., uh, so that's from May through July in, uh, again, room 239 of Stoffer Library. If you'd like more information, contact uh, Dave Pratt at dpratt1939 at hotmail.com. Barely going to get into this because there's a lot. I, uh, let's just introduce it this hour, and I'll talk about the poetry events coming up there at the end of the second hour. Uh, but uh, the 2019 uh, Skeleton Park Arts Festival is already underway. Uh, they've got a Sky Projects thing uh, coming up this evening where a projection is uh, um, this huge canvas. 
uh, is uh, left into the air and uh, uh, with some helium balloons. And there is music uh, on interlude and uh, video projection that shows on that. Looks like big screen up in the air. It's going to be pretty cool. That's happening tonight. I'd uh, suggest that you go to uh, Skeleton Park Arts uh, skeletonparkartsfest.ca and you're going to get all the information for everything coming up and uh, it is now 5 o'clock but what I'm going to do is after in the time I have for events in this hour near the end of the show and a bit more time than even this hour I'm going to go into two poetry events coming up this weekend but it is now uh, almost uh, half a minute after 5 o'clock I should let you know you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Crothers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. We do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. In this second hour, uh, from a June 6th book launch and reading event held again at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear Mark Burry uh, reading from and launching his new book called Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit uh, Radisson. Uh, this first, though, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Again, I'll have ample time at the end of this hour uh, to uh, go into a number of events that are happening this week, and I'll do that then. And uh, tell you what, let's go ahead and... Uh, just get into it, I guess. I think I've gone over everything I needed to, so up this hour, and it will consume a good portion of it, uh, from a June 6th book launch and reading event, again, held at Novel Idea Bookstore, you're going to hear Mark Borey, and it's B-O-U-R-R-I-E, uh, reading from and launching his new book, again, Bush Runner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit uh, Radisson. Here we go. Hi. So this is my book. I wrote this book. Yay! Uh, my book was published and is a book about Pierre Addison, who is an extraordinarily interesting person, I think. Uh, he, I'll, I'll give you the, the short version because I don't want to ruin the whole story, but he got dumped in Canada as a, as 13, 14 year old kid and almost immediately was uh, in 1651 was captured by the Mohawks and taken to their country where he was adopted by a very wealthy couple and lived among them for a couple of years and really enjoyed his time there for the most part. There are times when things did not go too well for him but again that's part of the book and uh, but after that <coughs> he spends a lot of time just being everywhere really interesting in his own time. So this is a time of great upheaval in North America. Uh, and I don't want to sound too academic because this is not uh, written as an academic book. But he spends uh, time in North America, which is in this tremendous flux as, um, as the fur trade and the interaction between indigenous people and uh, Europeans 
throws everybody for a loop. What are the dates approximately again? Well, <coughs> 1651, he, he rises in 1650, and he dies in 1710. So this is the period going from the end of the English Civil War and the end of the religious wars in France through the Restoration. All this is important because he's, he sees all of this personally. So it goes through uh, the, the restoration of the Stuarts in the 1660s in England. Uh, he's in England uh, during the Great Fire, the Great Plague, mm -hmm. uh, which I've got out of order. He's there for the Anglo-Dutch Wars. He's he's in the court of Charles II with all these people who are mm -hmm. Civil War survivors, uh, who are, have spent ten years in exile as pirates, uh, who before that were fighting uh, parliamentary forces. Uh, there is it's still a time of real unsettlement in England, which is not a word, but. Uh, there are constant plots and attempted coups and things which he finds himself caught up in. And eventually one of these destroys his life. But getting back to he's he he's he's captured by the Mohawks, he escapes from them after a couple of years, uh, goes to the Dutch who sent him to Europe. Uh, he comes back to North America as like a sixteen year old and he's living in, in the St. Lawrence Valley, and he makes another trip inland with the Iroquois, who are now at peace with the French, and that's when he basically comes by here. He spends some time on Wolf Island, uh, spends a night on Wolf Island. Uh, I, I'm going to read that part of it. Uh, he, he is part of an, uh, a Jesuit mission to the Iroquois that really goes badly, and they have to flee the next year. Then he... Then, uh, he ended up going out west, which, well, really, he got about as far as, uh, as maybe Minneapolis, uh, but he went up into the what we, <coughs> what they used to call the Old Northwest. So he went up into Lake Superior country, and he and his brother-in-law, Grosillier, who is a very different character because Radisson is very charismatic and flamboyant, and Grosillier is not. He's grumpy. He's he's duplicitous. He he offends he offends the indigenous people because he wears a beard, and to them this is really like disgusting. He hides food when everybody's starving, or he thinks people are going to starve again. He cheats people. He lies to the indigenous people. Um, a charmer. He's a real charmer, and he's always the foil on this thing, and he he becomes like problematic all the way along. Uh, so they go out and they make a tremendous amount of money, uh, which they blow, of course, very quickly, and they end up having to go. Now, the, the history books say that he that they were cheated by the Quebec governor, and so they decided to go to the English. And that's not true. Uh, they they uh, they got all their money back that they were fined for making this illegal trip. This fur trade trip out west was, was not licensed. They got all that money back, but they couldn't get out west anymore because the Iroquois blocked the trade routes. So they decided they're going to try and smuggle up to Hudson Bay, and Jesuits start popping up all over the place, warning them, don't do it, and spreading the stories about Grosillier being a cannibal and you know hating the French and just betraying them. And, the French had tried to buy New York and, uh, from the Dutch, and he supposedly scuttled that. Um, they they rightly accused him of, of um, being an like a unfit father and leaving his children and his wife behind, which he did. Uh, and then they went to England, and they arrived. They went out. They set off for England, 
and on the way across, they got captured by Dutch pirates who normally murdered everybody when they caught them. But these, they got, they got away from that and got dumped on the coast of Spain by the pirates. So they arrived late for the Great Plague. So the <laughs> plague was almost over. And they went to Oxford and, and hung out with the court of Charles II until the, everybody moved back. Um, and then they were stuck there because of the war that the British were losing, the English were losing against the Dutch. And they stayed there, uh, and Radisson wrote all his stuff down. But the thing with him is he's, he's a genius for languages. And so he, he, he writes it all in English, and he gives it to the king. Like, Charles II basically paid him to write down this fabulous story of his life among the, uh, among the Iroquois and his trips, you know, all over the place. And he's very honest in his writing. <coughs> like, he admits to eating people, which is very unusual in any kind of writing. That was one of the attractions. That the, second, the second attraction was that he really liked the indigenous people. He really liked the Iroquois. In fact, it really... Uh, the Iroquois family and his first wife are the only people I think he had real affection for, and maybe Grosselier. And in England, Grosselier is always the guy who spies approach, plotters approach and stuff because they know he's basically sleazy. Uh, and one spy even steals their story, uh, their plan, tells the French that he's basically Radisson, and they organize an expedition to Hudson Bay before Radisson ever went. Now, this is something that I found in an academic paper, and it was almost unbelievable what he did, even with the same ship name that Radisson's ship was, um, that they planned to go north with. But they didn't make it. They're, they had to turn around and come back. Another spy accused Grosselier of, um, well, he told, told the English, he told the uh, English government that, that the area around Hudson Bay was North Florida, full of white people um, who were really gullible and more than glad to give up everything they had, including all their gold and land and everything. Um, and that Grosselier had planned to go there and set up his own regime like Colonel Kurtz and mint his own money and, and be the king of all these people. And so he's trying to get Grosselier killed, basically as a counterfeiter and stuff. That that plan fell apart too. They, the English picked up this, this spy and they sort of worked him over a little bit and he admitted that this was not true. And uh, But this is the sort of thing that happens to them all the time. They, they go on several expeditions to the north. They, um, uh, they both defect back to the French, which is, in, in our history books, the story always ends with him helping to found the Hudson Bay Company and then the Hudson Bay Company to transfer us and everybody lives happily ever after but he didn't stay with them very long he went back to the French the French decided to cut him loose and they the best work he could get was to go on an expedition with the French Navy and a group of pirates and the whole French fleet got wrecked on a rock off the coast of Venezuela where he stayed there for weeks with these pirates uh, until they were all rescued and they, they went back to France um, Another trip to the north, where he basically cheated everybody, <coughs> and then he, he well he eloped with a pirate's daughter, um, and uh, he uh, he he came back and eventually he was sued in France, but he uh, eloped with the daughter of the French lawyer and the and the English lawyer who was suing him and went to England with them all. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing. Yeah. So pirates, daughters, lawyers, daughters, he married four times, had umpteen kids, 
uh, you know, acknowledged and unacknowledged. And uh, eventually, he just finally ran out of political luck and got sidelined. And he spent most of his life in um, where the London School of Economics is now. And then he was buried in a church that it became quite famous as one of the Christopher Wren churches in London. Mm -hmm. And it has an interesting story from the Blitz where his old bones probably got shaken up pretty badly. But the church is, is there again. And uh, so he, he left us this, this really intriguing life and he wrote so much of it down. So, so like there's two sources. One is the, the, the big volume that he wrote for Charles II which um, was only manuscripts, so it was never published. And Samuel Peps grabbed this thing and stole it. Um, and it was among his belongings. And in the 1800, late 1800s, somebody had, was going to make wallpaper out of it. And it, so it got found and it got, that got published in the States in the, in the uh, I think, 1885 or so. Uh, then uh, his other letters started to surface over the years. And then a Radisson who claimed some sort of connection to him got into the library of Windsor Castle under the Royal Archives a few years ago and found a French uh, sort of relation, basically a manuscript, that he wrote for James II, who was just as comfortable with French as he was in English. So that sort of finished the second part of the story. And then the Hudson Bay Company in the 19... I guess about the 1930s, put out a very limited edition of all the correspondence in and out uh, of Hudson Bay, which cost me a fortune to buy. <laughs> uh, and then the Champlain Society, which is a historic society that publishes uh, the uh, publishes uh, manuscript material, just basically uh, primary source history, came out a few years ago with a two-volume set of, of all of his correspondence and everything he wrote, which was analyzed by um, by a professor at the University of Toronto, who is very good at. I didn't agree with everything with her take on everything, but she did a, a pretty good job on that. So that that really helped nail down the sources uh, that were available. But in 2004, I'd written a a proposal for this book, and I was publishing them with Key Porter, and. The editor that I worked with pitched the book at Key Porter, but they were like, well, who's going to buy it? We're not sure what the market is for it. And so Key Porter didn't publish it. And I went on to do other things. I wrote several other books, and I finished my... I, I was actually did this proposal just as I was about to do a PhD. So I did the PhD, and my thesis was published, and I wrote a couple of other books. And the, the editor that I gave this to took it from Key Porter uh, to Thomas Allen, which was another good publisher, and uh, Patrick Crean, who was who published my two books I did for HarperCollins, turned it down because he wasn't sure what he would could do with it either. Uh, and <coughs> then she took it, she went to a Nancy, and they were like, wow, we're not sure. <laughs> then she took it to Biblioasis, which she went to her, in Canadian publishing, bouncing from job to job is not, is very, is very normal. Uh, people sort of brag about the place they've been fired from, or they've quit, or they've whatever. So she went to Biblioasis, and Biblioasis is a publisher that's very well known for its for its fiction, and um, and they were wanted to start doing nonfiction, and they wanted to try and do a nonfiction list that was as good as their fiction list. So I was very very blessed 
by the fact that this editor that I had worked with at Key Porter was going to be the person who started the nonfiction. So she took two books, this one and Cecil Foster's book on, uh, on black railway porters in Canada. And, but I mean, this book wasn't finished, so she called me up one day in 2016 and said, do you want to write the Radisson book? And I'm like, well, she'd always mentioned, you know, do you want to do rat She always called him Radisson, right? Do you want to do Radisson? It's a very Toronto person. And uh, I said, well, yeah, if anybody wants to publish it. Because I, I knew it was a great story, and I, and I had the story in my mind, but <coughs> I, I, maybe I hadn't communicated it very well. I, when I finally said, like, this guy's basically the Forrest Gump of his time, people go, oh, and, and he's, like, in this really cool place with these really cool people, <coughs> and they're all total desperados like him. And, uh, and I said, sure, I'll do this book. And, uh, and so I wrote it. Over, it took me about a year. And I really enjoyed the story myself because as I, as I researched it more deeply, I realized that his life stayed interesting all the way through. It did most people's sort of lives and books. There's a stretch of their life that people are very interested in, but his whole life is really neat until he's well into his 50s, from the time he's a teenager till he's deeply, deeply into his 50s. And then uh, at the end, he, he tries to sort of make up with the Hudson Bay Company, and they forget, they basically forgot about him. Sure, sure. But I'm gonna I'm gonna read part of it, just a bit, and it's the part where he's around here. Uh, but I'm gonna set it up a little bit. I'll wait till this nice lady's back with her water. So, like I said, he made he made two trips. Well, he made three trips inland. One was the time when he was captured, and he really didn't have much choice. And the second time was when he was with the Jesuits going to start a mission in basically right in the Syracuse area of New York State. Um, and then the third time was to go up the Ottawa River, cross Lake Nipissing, down the French River to Georgia Bay, up through the Sioux and into Lake Superior. But the, the one time he came up the St. Lawrence, uh, he was traveling with a, a flotilla of Iroquois. And they... Um, they were with a bunch of Huron, and there was a massacre of the Huron men on an island somewhere around Cornwall, where the Iroquois had done that. And then he was still with them, and he was terrified for the rest of the trip that he was going to be killed, especially since he'd already crossed them once. I mean, he had been, he had he had <laughs> fled them and betrayed them uh, at a time when and, and there's, a, there's a real kicker to it. But I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil the little zingers that are through the book, but. Uh, so he's traveling up the St. Lawrence River, and they stick him in a canoe with a guy who obviously does not like him, and they don't do not get along well at all. And uh, it took them quite a while to come up the river. They really poked along up through the, the Thousand Islands, but they eventually get to the river as they're headed. The plan is to come up here, uh, basically get to Wolf Island, uh, cross the cross the lake or will cross the river and then go along the, the south shore of the lake till they get to past Oswego and, until they get to um, Pat, and, and past Rochester and sort of about a third of the way along the south shore they would go inland and to the to the to Syracuse the area and um, and so he so as they're going along they get to um, it's the summertime and uh, they're traveling mostly, you know, like, well, they're traveling two, three people in a canoe, 
a woman gives birth to a baby on the way and stuff, and then he's with this guy. And every time they fight, like they get into these little cat fights in the canoe, but there's not much fighting you can do in a canoe. So everybody's laughing at them. They, they become sort of the clown show of the whole thing. So it really kind of makes you doubt whether or not he's a sort of great heroic figure to the to the Iroquois or just a sort of comic relief on this trip um, to the point where they just like kill him if whatever. So uh, so they get, so it's hot, it's sort of the end of the summer and you're getting to the point where the season is about to change from hot and muggy to, you know, to fall wind and um, they, uh, they come up through the islands and they get to Let's see. I'm going to start it here. So they, uh, the day before they get to Wolf Island, they, they, they come up to a camp on an island, maybe on the far side of Wolf Island. So, uh, so I, I'll just read uh, like yeah. maybe 500 words of it. So, um, <coughs> so his nemesis is the guy in the, 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 at the, in the canoe with him. <coughs> Um, he was alone with his nemesis for three unpleasant nights before finally reaching the main camp, main Iroquois camp, where some of the men were cutting up a bear that they'd killed. <laughs> Days later, they were near the upper reaches of the St. Lawrence, watching eagles and ospreys taking fish from the river. Whatever sadness Radisson felt for the murdered Huron men, this was down in the islands around uh, Cornwall, uh, seems to have passed as the canoeist moved from the flatlands of the lower river through the islands of the Canadian Shield. When they reached the large islands near the outlet of Lake Ontario, the landscape changed back to flat limestone plains. Big silver Atlantic salmon were spawning on the gravel banks, so the Iroquois could take as many as they wanted, along with enormous brown and yellow sturgeon that lurked in deeper, calmer channels and were easy to kill with spears. Some of these fish were more than <coughs> six feet long, 200 years old, and according to Radisson, tasted something like lobsters. The Iroquois camped at a basin a basin shaped probably the Iroquois camped at a basin shaped quote, like a half moon, possibly Big Sand Bay on Wolf Island. A place where the water teemed with fish and eels that could be clearly seen in thirty feet of clean water. Travelers came across nine Mohawks living in bark cabins who were on their way back from a raid against the Eries, bringing with them two captive women, a six year old child, and a twenty five year old man. Some of these Mohawks knew Radisson and seemed to have no hard feelings over his escape. They gave him a garland of wampum and a girdle made of what Radisson thought was goat's hair, but was probably bison. The Mohawks wondered when he would be coming back. I promised to come as soon as I could. Uh, I promised to come as soon as I could arrive at the upper village of the Onondagas. I gave them, the, these are the Iroquois that he met, my hatchet to give to my father, that's his adopted father back in, in, the, in the Mohawk country, and two dozen brass rings and two shooting knives for my sisters, promising to bring a cover for my mother. The uh, Mohawks wondered why Radisson left and how he got away. Rather than admit that the Dutch traders at Fort Orange had helped him, Radisson claimed to have traveled 12 days back to the French town of Trois-Rivières. Um, I'm going to skip over part here. Um, Leaving Wolf Island as the summer heat wave continued, the voyagers found the waters of Lake Ontario to be calm. They headed south to what's now the New York side of the lake, and when a breeze picked up, rigged a crude sail that carried their canoe far offshore. 
Iroquoians did not like to travel miles from land, their boats not being built to handle the stress of large waves. Indeed, the afternoon ended with, as so many hot Great Lakes summer days do with a thunderstorm preceded by a wind squall that made Radisson and his whiny canoe companion the same man who had dagged him through the Thousand Islands paddle for their lives. The squall hit hard with a wall of rain that piled into the boat from the wind-whipped waves. Radisson was sure he was about to drown. And to add to his misery, his companion began to expound on religion, a topic that never seemed to interest Radisson unless there was some chance of a prophet. Now this is the uh, this is the Iroquois guy and his his nemesis talking. See your God that is above. Will you make me believe now that he is good as the black coats the Jesuits say? They do lie, and you see the contrary. For first you see that the sun burns us often, the rain wets us, the wind makes us shipwreck, the thundering, the lightning burns and kills, and all come from above, and you say that's good to be there. For my part, I will not go there. Contrary, they say that the reprobates and guilty go down and burn. They are, are they are mistaken. All is good here. Do not... Do not you see the earth that nourishes all living creatures, the water, the fishes, and corn, and all other seasonable fruits for our food, which things are not so contrary to us as that from above? He raised his gun and hatchet. I will not be above. Here I will stay on earth where all my friends are, and not with the French that are to be burned above with torments. The two men finally focused on the problem at hand and made a sort of storm anchor. They took a bag of corn, tied a rope, tied it to a rope, and dropped it so that it hung 24 feet below the bow of the canoe. Then they moved towards the stern. The canoe swung its bow into the wind, and the weight at the stern raised the prow that faced the waves. This helped reduce the chance of the canoe being swamped completely. Like most Lake Ontario squalls, this one passed quickly, although the although to the two canoes it probably seemed to last a very, very long time. Once it passed, they made for the shore, reaching land somewhere near the mouth of the Black River. I'm just going to leave it there. And I left out a couple of paragraphs about what happens in the camp. And, uh, but it gives you an idea of, of basically the, the tone and stuff. And, and that was the real challenge of the book, <laughs> was to come up with the right tone that wasn't mm -hmm. academic, that wasn't preachy, but that could stand academic scrutiny. So I ended up writing a lot of footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> Why did the Iroquois kill the Huron? Were they, were they known enemies? Who? The Iroquois and the Huron? Oh, yeah. yeah. He arrived. Why were they together then? Um, they had the Iroquois had defeated the Huron and then had adopted as many as they could. So what had happened was that the, the Huron that were um, at Quebec City were basically sold out by the French to the Iroquois and were put in a position where they had very little choice but to join them and go with them on this expedition. So there's a lot of betrayal all over the place. Yeah. And what, what the Jesuits wanted to do in the Iroquois country was the same in 1656 was the same thing they had done in the Huron country in the 1640s which was at Midland where St. Raymond and the Hurons is which is to build a fort and a mission and convert the Iroquois. They had come pretty close with the Huron and then the Iroquois had attacked them in the in the spring of 1649 and, and you know destroyed enough of their villages that the rest of the Hurons just fled. Um, some of them went out west and a lot of them went to Quebec City. But the ones at Quebec City, they, they became a pawn in the diplomatic game between the French and the Iroquois. His loyalties were very, very thin back then. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the French basically sold them out 
to the, to the Iroquois, mm -hmm. and then a lot of the men were killed by the Iroquois, and the women were all adopted. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was pretty brutal. Adopted. Well, they were... The, Adopt. No, they, they, <laughs> they actually... No, 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 that, that's a good point. His, his mother, his adoptive mother, was a Huron, and she was adopted as a clan mother of the Iroquois. Like she, she got a position in <coughs> that society of real leadership. Um, she married a war chief. Well, whether or not she wanted to marry this guy at the beginning, or you know, this is another question altogether. Because rom romantic unions were not were not normal. <coughs> but um, when Radisson goes to them, and he's the first French person I can find who's who's adopted, and he was given the name of their son who had been killed in an expedition. He was given. Um, they went and got him European clothes that they bought from the Dutch. They gave him a little gun to go out and hunt with. They gave him all kinds of wampum, which w was used as money. Um, he he had a real privileged place in that society very quickly. Now, some of the Huron had that, even some of the Huron warriors, and I, I really believe, and I I've never I didn't really get into it in this book because it was it was it was a conclusion I've come to. That nobody's really written about that there was a, like a, 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 a sort of knightly class, a warrior class that knew each other across national boundaries and helped each other out. Like mm -hmm. there were cases of, of top warriors who were captured by the other side who were let go when less important people got were just murdered. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there was sort of a like a, a sort of nobility of, of upper tier warriors and. Um, he would, would have been part of that through his adoptive father. Mm -hmm. the, um, the Huron, some of the Huron were not treated very well and some were, and I think it took some time. The, 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 the advantage that the Huron had over the French was that they, the languages were so similar, the Iroquois and Huron, that they could learn the Iroquois languages quite quickly. And they looked like Iroquois, they talked like Iroquois, they they knew the whole culture, which is a very, very complex culture. And Radisson didn't, but he learned the language so well, so quickly. I think that was one of the things that really saved his life. He could learn a language. Um, well, the one instance, he learned Dutch. So he spent from like the summer of 1653 to December in the Dutch colony, like basically Manhattan. And then he went on a ship to Holland, that probably took like two months. So let's say six months, eight months with the Dutch. 20 years later, he could speak Dutch to prisoners of war mm -hmm. that were taken during that expedition to the, uh, to the uh, Caribbean. He, I figured that he could speak seven or so different, very different First Nations languages, uh, plus English to the point that after three years of living with the English, he could actually write very well in English. Uh, French, of course, uh, Dutch. Um, what was the other one? I think he could speak four, four European languages plus seven indigenous languages. Like he just had this incredible ear for them. And he, he, well, from what I can work out about him, he was charismatic. He was handsome. Um, he was strong, but not like a particularly. I don't think he's particularly large man. Um, very cagey. Uh, very able to pick up what was the politics that was going on around him, which is completely different to Grossilier, which is why he's such a great character in the book, because he, he just never gets it. And he just stumbles along 
um, lying and cheating people, and eventually, you know, yeah. And then, <laughs> and, and then his son uh, picks up the picks it up, and then he and the son disappears. So it's not too much of a of a spoiler to say that his son just is just falls out of history. But Grosilier of the two of them has huge number of descendants in, in Canada. Uh, I, I my sister does genealogy, and I haven't been able to talk to her yet, but to see if we have any descent from Grosilier. But he he just kept coming back and impregnating his wife and leaving. Over and over again, uh, that woman was, you know, had the patience of Job, or she was just basically stuck. Um, so she stayed in Canada, and he he would just keep coming back and just doing this, and the, and and even the Jesuits they were calling him like a deadbeat dad, that he didn't pay anything to for to look after his kids, and there were a couple of kids that when he got married, she had a couple of kids, he tried to have them put away. Uh, said that they were like juvenile delinquents. Like he's just a bad man. <laughs> so he's uh, he, he becomes like a very good, and, and Radisson himself. There's issues about him um, that are kind of kind of fun to to work with, and and there's issues with everybody almost that he deals with because even the king, they're all a bunch of murderers and pirates, and you know Prince Rupert who we. we any sort of Canadian history that talks about him is this fabulous prince and blah blah blah. Well, Prince Rupert had been uh, a general in his early 20s during the English Civil War, and he lost. And he got fired from the king's army because he surrendered the town of Bristol. And um, he had no money. He he came from this gigantic family. Uh, he was he was Charles uh, King Charles's sister's son. King Charles the first one who got his head cut off, but she'd had like the sister had, had all these kids, and they had been run out of their kingdom that they had like her, her her and her husband, which started the Thirty Years' War. So they're they're off to um, uh, they're they're his his parents Rupert's parents lived in exile on charity. He lived in exile on charity. He, he and his brother Maurice became pirates, and they during the time that the that England was a republic. They sailed down to the Caribbean, and Maurice got washed off the ship and drowned. And Rupert and his pirates, who used to be actually the English Navy, um, sailed back with nothing and ended up broke. So it's only by sheer luck that that Rupert was back in power and back in a position to make make some money and and be patron to Radisson. So he's just as much of a cutthroat as Radisson is. Um, you know, it was just a matter of who was in and who was out. And Radisson picked the right side all the way along until he picked the wrong side. Mm -hmm. There was a revolution in England in 1688, and he was, Radisson was a Catholic, mm -hmm. and he was buddies with the king, mm -hmm. and the king got the boot, and everybody connected with him got the boot. And that was, like I said, his political, his political luck ran out. Yeah. So it's a short book. It's got lots of pictures. And... Um, it's meant to be read as a, as a lot of fun. It sounds as though you've combined sort of an adventure, a real adventure story with uh, historical. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And I was able to do a lot of rebuttal on, um, especially Conrad Black's writings on uh, indigenous people, where he said they had no society, they had no law, they had no idea of property. I just take all that apart in the first like 25 pages of this book. And so that's if, important. So if I hadn't done, if I that in itself was made the book worth writing, um, I, I say like these people, they had a government. Um, each of these First Nations did, but the one that I talk about the most is the Mohawk, because that's where he is, and I always write it through his eyes. Um, so they had a government, they had ideas of, of property in terms of land, uh, different ways you could you, you could have a trust from the from the from the First Nation, or you could work cooperatively. You had a choice. They had. Um, all the canoe routes were owned by individual okay. people, so if there was a canoe route, say, from, I don't know, up the Ottawa Valley, whatever, that route belonged to the descendants of whoever found it. And they had to, and if you used it, you had to pay them. And if you didn't pay them, really unpleasant things would happen to you. And because uh, the whole family, the whole extended family would be on your case for basically stealing. So they did have ideas of property. It was a toll road. It was like the, I talk about it being like the Rhine. Where uh, all those castles on the Rhine were built by people who could hit people up for tolls. And there was a tolling operation on the Ottawa River at Alumet Island where um, this one band collected from everybody who went by. And if you didn't, the Jesuits refused to pay one time and they took the head of the Jesuit missions in Canada and put a rope around his armpits and hung him up from a tree until they paid. Uh, so we're not talking about bush hippies and, and you know, and. Uh, and Marxists of the wilderness. These were people who were very keen on um, protecting their interests. So uh, that's one of the things I talk. I mean, I'm, I'm not portraying them as total capitalists. I think it was a very cooperative society. But it's not. It's certainly not anarchy. It's a very organized society that that a, a Frenchman who's 14 years old has to learn really fast if he wants to survive in it. And then after that, I just get to have lots of fun with, with him being in all these wonderful places. And I get to describe the Great Plague and the Great Fire and how the mobs in London, the London mobs are always so famous, went around hanging um, any foreigners that could get their hands on, because of course foreigners had to be blamed. And they found one poor guy, some French guy, and they got him to confess, even though he'd been out of town at the time. Um, <laughs> but that, that, they, they were able to convince him that confessing was a good idea. So, uh, so that's, that's my little book. It's not that long. But it's, uh, it's meant to be a fun read. And it's got very good reviews from the Globe and Mail and the Winnipeg Free Press and Canadian Geographic, among others. And tomorrow night I'll be doing a one-hour program with Paul Kennedy on ideas Ooh. on CBC. Yeah. <laughs> so we we recorded that last last week in Ottawa, um, and tomorrow, uh, night? tomorrow night at nine o'clock. And uh, they'll pro they'll put up a, a podcast and they're gonna play it through the summer when they're on. And this is his last month as as host. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. He's retired, and yeah. he's. They've got somebody else to do it. They're gonna keep the program going, but he wouldn't tell me who it was. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, if 
If you want to get up and walk around and uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That was very, very interesting, and I'm excited to read that book. And you just heard uh, from a June 6th, the book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, Mark Borey uh, reading from and launching his new book, Bushrunner, The Adventures of uh, Pierre Radisson. Let's uh, go ahead. Maybe I should do this now and then I won't have to do it later and I'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. Sit back, relax, listen to some hip-hop with the premium plus. Friday stop rocking till it's time to go. Mix the DJ professional rocking the show. The fantastic. Dollar bill every Friday night. 9 p.m. Sit back, relax, listen to some hip hop on the premium plus show. Friday night, whatever the Enjoy camping, cottaging, hiking, or being outdoors after a long winter? We are not alone. Every summer, Ontarians far and wide escape the daily grind and head to the great outdoors. But holidays have the ability to turn deadly due to Lyme disease a potentially fatal disease caused by the bite of a black-legged tick, known as a deer tick. Causing similar symptoms to the flu, such as fever, headache, fatigue, muscle and joint pain. However, if you see a red, bullseye-type rash, chances are you don't have the flu. Take a few precautions to make sure Lyme disease doesn't ruin your vacation this year. Avoid shrubs and tall grassy areas where black-legged ticks are known to live. Bug repellent containing DEET is an effective way to prevent ticks from biting you. Cover up. When you're in areas that are known to have ticks, cover all exposed areas of your body. Wear white so you're able to see if a black tick is on you. Infected ticks are primarily found along the north shores of Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and the St. Lawrence River. Be prepared this summer and don't get ticked off. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. 
Let the hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, Just uh, still uh, seems like a lot of show left here, probably to those of you out there. But I've decided uh, that uh, I wanted to include ample time, I guess, uh, to uh, share more events. uh, Because there are two, and between this weekend and next weekend... Uh, two large annual arts festivals going on, and uh, one of them is continuing this weekend. The other one, again, uh, begins next weekend and goes through Monday. So, And there are a number of other events, and things definitely slow down after the next couple of weeks here as far as events. So I wanted to do justice to a number of these because uh, I really... It's been, the shows have been tight enough each week that uh, I haven't allowed. Uh, I wanted to make sure and get the recorded uh, events and readings out there, uh, but try to only stay maybe a week ahead with events. So uh, things, uh, and and up until this week, uh, still quite a few events, but a little more sparse a little bit more time in between them uh, but again two uh, uh, two arts festivals that have uh, bear, um, quite significant really uh, poetry segments to them uh, annual events this year and I wanted again I'm probably uh, overstating it but I did want to uh, be sure and allow enough time uh, one does expire at the end of the weekend, so this will be my last chance. The other one doesn't really give anybody is uh, happening immediately, essentially after the show, so next week. So I want to kind of give a little bit of a heads up to that as well. I had mentioned uh, that, in fact, there's already one poetry event of the Skeleton Park Arts Festival uh, that began on Wednesday night uh, and uh, continues through the weekend. Uh, with the event I already talked about, the projection into the tarp in the sky uh, that happens this evening at, uh, I believe, 8.45. As, as, as soon as it's dark enough, uh, there'll be a little bit of music, I think, uh, going on ahead of that. And I believe there's a solstice event happening in the same park, I believe, uh, this evening that was postponed from yesterday because of the rain. So you've got that going on. Uh, so uh, the two remaining poetry events as part of Skeleton Park Arts Festival are both held at in, uh, their Hillside Park events. And uh, Hillside Park, if you don't know where it is, from McBurney or Skeleton Park, is uh, just up from it. Uh, go to the corner, northeast corner, I guess it would be, of uh, Skeleton Park. And uh, you'll exit out, uh, or can, on Bay Street. And, or I'm sorry, yeah, no, on Bay Street. Uh, just go the, uh, I don't know, 150 feet or so to Sydenham Street when you finally do come out. Uh, and uh, turn left on Sydenham and uh, immediately just up from Bay Street then on Sydenham Street. Look down 
after another 100 feet maybe and you'll see a path leading down to the park or you can come up uh, from Montreal Street uh, where North Street dead ends into Montreal Street and there there is a pretty big sign that says Hillside Park so it's pretty evident if you come in from that direction. But tomorrow, uh, this will be the third annual uh, Hillside Stage Poetry event, and again, part of uh, this year's uh, 2019 Skeleton Park Arts Festival. Uh, This is uh, co-presented by Kingston Writers Fest and Skeleton Park Arts Fest, and uh, also supported uh, by... uh, Novel Idea, are sponsored by Novel Idea Bookstore. And uh, ha- what's happening this year on the stage are uh, three poetry, or three poets and uh, two violinists from uh, uh, the Kingston Symphony. So it's going to be a very beautiful event. Uh, Kingston Poet Laureate Jason Haru, uh, Sarah Mili Chiang, and Olivia Aus are the poets. And uh, the Kingston Symphony violinists are Julia McFarlane and Erica Sluice. Uh, the event begins tomorrow afternoon at 1 p.m. We'll run, it's scheduled from 1 to 2.30. I, I don't believe it will last that long. Uh, it's a little bit uh, more concise uh, this year. There'll be, I think, tentatively, the itinerary will be a couple of poetry readings, uh, a nice uh, Interlude with the uh, two violinists uh, after that, and followed by a final poetry reading. And again, this will be held in the Hillside Park. And uh, let me just give you their website, uh, Skeleton Park's website, uh, uh, skeletonparkartfest.ca should take you right there. They do have a Facebook page as well, so you can search for it there. The following day, and this will be the first year for that, is uh, uh, Kingston Poet uh, Laureate uh, uh, Jason Haru is going to offer a poetry uh, writing workshop. And uh, it's about, and the title of it is Prose Poetry, a Literature's Lunchbox is what he's calling uh, the title of the event, but it's going to be... Uh, uh, writing workshop that centers around prose poetry. So it sounds very exciting. This begins again in the same place, Hillside Park, but this one is on Sunday. So Sunday, June 23rd, uh, f- scheduled from 2 to 3.30. So again, uh, skeletonparkartsfest.ca or just check out their Facebook page and uh, you'll find uh, all the other events that are going on there too in both Hillside Park and the main Park. Also happening on Saturday, tomorrow, uh, from 2 to 3.30, at the Central Branch on the second floor in Meeting Room 1 of the Kingston Frontenac Public Library, uh, you'll hear author Miriam uh, Rafi, 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 I'm not sure how to say it, but it's R-A-F-I-E-E, uh, personal, it says personal and heartfelt session, uh, discusses her attempts to communicate uh, with her father during his imprisonment in Iran, but was not allowed. And her book uh, is called uh, Dear Baba. And uh, she says she uh, will show through letters and recordings what she wished she could have told her father. 
along with the news she wanted to share with him. Uh, I would suggest you go www.kfpl.ca. That's the Kingston Frontenac Public Library's website. Uh, I believe they're suggesting this is for open to adults and teens on a drop-in basis, it says. And uh, might be too late for this because uh, it's happening tomorrow. But if you have any questions, uh, you can uh, uh, email J, so initial J M I L L E R, so J Miller at kfpl.ca. Another Kingston Front Act Public Library live event coming up uh, this week, yes, is called uh, Fraud Awareness, and uh, and it's sort of information that will help you, help protect you from fraud, especially over the telephone or email, ransomware, extortion, uh, phony Canada Revenue Agency or bank. Uh, uh, emails or calls. So, yeah, so it, that is coming up. It's actually happening in two locations. It's happening on, uh, let me see. Yeah, I just found a typo in this, so and that's my fault. <laughs> I printed it up. Anyway, coming up uh, this coming Wednesday, June 26th at 2 p.m. at the Kingston Front Act Public Library's Isabel Turner Branch, which is out by the mall, so 935 Gardner's Road. It is happening the next day, June 27th, again at 2 p.m., and you better double-check on that. I thought when I did this, those were different times. So uh, this is the Sydenham branch. I actually thought that was an evening event. I may have made a mistake. www.kfpl.ca. Please go there and double-check those times, but I'm pretty sure the dates are right. Coming up then a week from tomorrow, so Saturday, June 29th from 2 to 4.30, uh, you will uh, find uh, a Hot Chocolate Charity concert and this month uh, they are honoring uh, Planned Parenthood Ottawa. With that I just looked at the clock and realized I've got to get out of here. I do want to thank you for tuning in today. Uh, You've been listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, I didn't even get halfway through uh, what I wanted to uh, share as far as events, so that shows even when I think I've allowed myself a lot of time to do that, it still isn't enough. So what I'm going to do is give me a second here to find out... uh, Hang on, I'm just going to turn around and look at something. Well, it isn't where I thought it was, so I'm just going to play it by ear here. I would want to remind you as well that... uh, both hours of today's show will uh, be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. Uh, we'll remain there four years. Uh, that uh, blog address is finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And uh, hope you can stay tuned for two hours of salt wa- of East Coast music in a show called Saltwater Music hosted by uh, Rob Carnell, and I had intention, I was going to leave with music, I had intentionally chosen another song, but you know what, I'm just going to 
go with one that will fit the time now and uh, that does also buy me a minute just to mention that uh, coming up a week from tomorrow as well is uh, Poets at Art Fest 5. This will be the fifth year for that annual event. We'll feature 56 poets and uh, there will also be a book launch in it that I will talk about a little more next Friday, I guess. But it's going to be from 10 to 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, next uh, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Well, yeah, and then the following Monday, which is uh, July 1st. So I hope you have a wonderful week. Before you do that, I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening and uh especially uh, the next two hours, again, with uh, Rob Carnell and uh, two hours of East Coast music. And uh, the show is called Saltwater Music. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information, or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.